Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Go ahead. So let's uh, not tell anybody about all the money we got from Bill Gates because of that pro-vaccine article I wrote, okay? Jindo, we're recording. Stop. Oh, I Let- cut it. Cut. Oh, anyway. Oh. Hello, folks. I'll, I'll edit that out. <laughs> how are you today, Roche? Very good. I, re- I was just uh, checking the uh, stock market to see how my uh, huge uh, portfolio is doing. And, and But wait a second. Let me, let me save my place here in Das Kapital, because I'm also in the middle <laughs> of that. Uh, this is going to be kind of a mixed bag episode. It's going to be about Buddha and capitalism. Didn't we do one about Buddhanomics recently? Uh, yes, there, there's a little overlap uh, there, but uh, this is uh, whether uh, Buddha was a revolutionary, a uh, kind of Dharma Trotskyite, or uh, whether he was actually for the star, status quo, conservative fellow, whether uh, Dogen uh, was uh, a socialist. We're gonna get. We're gonna go touch on all of it today. Okay, where do we begin? Because we're dealing with complex, globalized economic systems. Can we really narrow them down to what one person at one time thought? Well, I can say this. Uh, the Buddha lived in Iron Age India at a time when... Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you say that, Iron Age, because we don't think of that. We think of it as just the past. You know, we think of Greece, ancient Greece, right, around the same time as the past. But then when you say Iron Age, we think of the Flintstones and cavemen. No, 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 that, that was the Stone Age. You ah, know? Stone Age, okay. Yes, the Buddha did not have a, a car he had to drive with his feet. He had a chariot. <laughs> it's a little different. But yes. uh, the, the question is, was there even capitalism then? And the answer is, uh, and this is where I was checking Das Kapital. Perhaps, according to Chapter 7 of Das Kapital, you had the... It, Early rise of the bourgeoisie, the the middle class. It was the first urban culture when business was developing, when there was the mercantile, the exchange. Uh, you had the rich and the poor. So yes, in some sense, Buddhism only arose because the economic and uh, shall we say the entire uh, theft of property was occurring there by a certain class that was dominating the other classes. And it was oppression. And the Buddha rose during this time and was a great revolutionary. Or was he? Hmm. Interesting take on it. Ah, uh, he also hung out with the rich, with the kings. He did. You know? So, so who was the Buddha? What do you think, Kurt? First of all, this sort of tripartite division of society, the peasants, the merchants, and the wealthy ruling class is you know, goes back a long time, probably goes back, maybe not in cavemen days, but I mean, in, in the Flintstones, they kind of had that, didn't they? What is with you and the Flintstones? <laughs> it seems like a natural order for things. There were people that were growing food. Once cities 
formed. They needed enough food for all the people who were living in the city who couldn't be out in the fields growing the food. So you had to have a class of people who were the farmers and the peasants, the people growing the food. You had to have a class of people who were storing the food, producing it, converting it, taking the bread, whatever they were doing. And then, of course, there were the ones up at the top who were getting the vig, taking a cut out of everything, and ruling. But it, it's almost a natural form of society. I think this is chapter 27 of the second volume of Marx's Cap. Well, the better Buddhologists than I, and Indologists, what do you call an Indologist? You're, you're good with words. I don't know. A Guys? Specialist of ancient Indian history. Guys who know a lot about old India say right. that- Iron Age that India. Iron Age India, you needed a kind of urban culture to support er, early Buddhism. And, and, it's, and it's true, because he, here's a fact. Uh, one of the reasons that if the Buddha was a revolutionary, he pl- kind of played a two, two-way street. He had his monks, who he said, have minimal property, own only three robes, live for your one meal, live for your one meal a day. But someone's got to pay for this. So let's turn to the rich guys out there. Well, let's go begging in the street and get what we can from anyone, whether they're rich or middle class, right? I guarantee you begging did not pay the electric bill. Not that they had an electric bill back in Iron Age India, but the, but the point is it took money to do with the money, cash, capital. Well, did it take money or did it take the equivalent of money? Like, I trade you three bushels of wheat for the material to make robes, that sort of thing. Well, uh, I, I suppose... Because that's the whole point of capitalist economy is to create something that acts as an interface between bartering, right? Well, no, Maybe I, you've I, got I, three bushels of wheat and the, no one wants to buy it today, so you can store that up and get the value of it at some other point. Okay, the Buddha started small. He started, let's say, the equivalent of a small mom-and-pop store, except there was no mom, okay? It was just right. pop. It was just, just pop. pop. It was a pop and, and, and pop store, all right? And then he, what did he do? Franchise! He had to <laughs> spread out, right? A monastery over here, a monastery over there. Basically, he was the McDonald's of Buddhism, right? No, I'm, I'm a, you know. Buddha. Well, you know, but it's spread. And spread takes building. It takes land. It takes, yep. you need, uh, you need a lot more than just, you know, uh, to worry about where the next meal is coming from. So I think the monks did go out, but it took, it took more. And when you read, the old sutta story, you, you can see it. It's not hidden. Who is the Buddha preaching to? Is he going to preach to the poor people once in a while? But usually he's visiting who? This king, this rich guy, that uh, courtesan, she's got a little money. You name it. <laughs> he hung out with the... Elite. The elite, yes. What is the Marxist term for that? Um, the capitalist um, slave driver wage stealer, whatever something monster. This is who the Buddha hung out with. So, was the Buddha a revolutionary? Yes, in the sense that he rejected society, he rejected property, uh, he rejected, uh, the monks didn't have private property. He said, each according to your labors, right? Uh, You contribute. We uh, uh, leave our past behind. We're all equal, except like, uh, I think in the Sangha, actually. Uh, to quote George Orwell, some were more equal than others. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. You know, yeah, everybody wore the same robes, but uh, 
when I was in China as a student many years ago, the Marxists would all dress like the farmers, except if they had an extra pocket, you knew that they were a high, they called it dagambu, a high padre in the party, you see. But I wonder if the guys who had their robes, you know, he folds it a certain way, you know, oh, this is a guy, he, this is a big guy. So I'm not saying the Buddha was not a revolutionary. He was, but he knew that somebody's got to pay for the revolution, my friend. Well, I think any efficient revolutionary evolts within the system. Like, you change the system from within, you don't easily change it from without. And of course, we've got histories of revolutions that generally failed the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, 1917. The American Revolution is different because it's not really a revolution. It was a separation from a country that was managing colonies from afar. So it's a bit different. Except the early Buddha was not a believer in revolution in this life. He thought this world was homeless. If the revolution comes, it's going to come uh, 27,000 lives from now in the future. <laughs> so the point was not to change society. The point that society is kind of hopeless, man. Ooh, okay. This is getting pretty dark. I think we need to remember that we don't know what the Buddha said or did, except from what people put down on scrolls, papyrus, vellum, whatever. Well, I know, but when they first writ wrote it down, it was a couple hundred years after. And so this was already molding his message to fit the society that was no longer his at the time. Well, it's, I, you know, in all respect, I think we can guess that he could not have changed society even if he had wanted to. And I bet he wanted to. I'm just guessing. He doesn't seem like, from what little we know, at a distance, guessing even, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. So I'm sure that he would have tried to make things better if he had, if he could have. What was even society to the Buddha? He didn't know how big India was, how big the world was, and he, didn't, he wasn't even Indian. He lived in a state in what we now call India. He didn't have that much of an idea of the scale of society. Of course, Silk Road, things were passing from you know, Greece to India to China and all that, but would, any, would a man of his time have had the understanding of how vast society was and how different his local society was from the one 100 miles away. Well, let's question about whether he knew everything, including being able to predict the future, which I kind of am skeptical about. Could he have anticipated anything about our modern world, present capitalism, our present consumer-driven society? And even if he did have uh, some hint of it, which I doubt, what do his teachings have to do with who we are today? This is a question. Well, the, the thing about Buddhism is anyone can look at Buddhism and take a little bit of it to apply to any field and any idea in any way they want. There's so much to pick and choose. There are like 17 million words in all those suttas, and you can just pick what you want to say what you want. So that's, that's right. We can say anything we want about Buddhism. That's why we have an endless string of episodes ahead <laughs> of us, because we could basically, uh, yes. Hey, hey, you know, we're coming up to episode 108 soon. That's, that's a good, big number. That's, that's going to be a special one. I got some, some things yeah. in mind. I'll talk to you later. Yeah. yeah. But, but anyway, about the economics, is there anything in the Buddhist suttas that you know about economics? Was he giving any tips for the stock market? Well, this is where we cross over a little into that other episode. 
I don't think he would have uh, even uh, understood the stock market. He may have understood the wheat market. You see, that's what they mm -hmm. had back then. They had things like that. They had trading. But uh, would he have said anything? Again, we're guessing. But I imagine he would have said, uh, from all I've read, that supposedly he said, be nice to each other. Mm. Be nice to each other. He did write, supposedly, some things where he advised some of his wealthy patrons to be kind to the people who work for you. Now, he wasn't okay. specific about that. He said, just treat them decently. He didn't say give them a dental plan. He wasn't <laughs> that specific. Uh, but he did say, be kind to the people who work for you. Uh, give them a fair deal when they're sick. You know, let them recover. Uh, but he didn't discuss, uh, you know, uh, too many details. That's the thing. We have to we have to guess. It was a cruel life back then. And even if you had said to someone, uh, you know, treat your workers well, what did that mean back 2,005 years ago? For example, there were sections of the Buddhist suttas that say, you know, be nice to your slaves. He didn't say slavery was wrong. He kind of said, well, you know, slavery is just what it is. You know, be nice to your slaves. Only beat them on Tuesday. You read the ancient Greek philosophers, and they're talking about slaves all the time. They're talking about freedom and how men should, you know, live a wonderful life, and they're still talking about slaves. So there's a real paradox in the sense that they can't, they can't see beyond the social structures that they've grown up in, right? They're just assuming that there were slaves. In India, you had the caste system. I assume it started back then. So they couldn't see beyond that. They weren't imagining changing society in that way. I, I, not that they could have, even if they had wanted to. I bet you that if you had sat the Buddha down and said, look, don't you think we can do without slavery? He would have said, yes. Did he have a choice? No. Would anyone listen to him? No. Because in the, those days, the king would not go, oh, this is the Buddha. You know, we got to listen to him. The Buddha, the kings usually said, this is one of, one guy preaching one of 27 religions in my kingdom. Yeah. You know, he's got his following. I want to keep him happy. Very good. I'm very impressed with some of the things he said. But if he causes too much trouble, you know what happened to Jesus? You know what happened to Jesus? We would be talking <laughs> about Buddha on the cross. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> this sort of religion, it lives or dies through natural selection. It spoke to people. People accepted it. People shared it. People franchised it. And that's what kept it alive. The other ones dropped away. There were all sorts of other guys. There was, you know, Harvey over there who was teaching the same thing as the Buddha, but he wasn't as dynamic. Oh, Harvey. Yes, I'm a big Harveyite. <laughs> he just wasn't as dynamic. He didn't have the speaking skills. He didn't have that throat mic that lets him walk around on stage when he's giving <laughs> talks, right? We could all be doing meditation on our heads if Harvey had won out over the Buddha. But then what happened? Buddhism goes to places like China, yep. where it fared no better because you got emperors and warlords. Yep. And the same deal. Keep your mouth shut. And same thing in Japan. Sa samurai. Samurai, yes. yeah. Basically, uh... You keep your mouth shut and keep in your monastery, no problem. Yep. Open your mouth. No, no, no. We burned down your monastery. And they used to do that. Don't think that the leaders of these places would say, oh, this is a sacred place. They'd say those guys are troublemakers. They would get torches. They would go in there, burn down the monastery. Maybe if the uh, religious leader, the Buddhist priest was uh, lucky, they'd Banish him to a mosquito-infested island? If not, you know, off with your head. It was a tough thing. So most of these guys, what did they do? What the only thing they could do? Either get your monastery burned or keep your mouth shut, close the door, let the world outside be what it is. 
There's not a lot of moralizing on economic policy from old Buddhists. There is not. So it was kind of like the Godfather. They'd go to the monastery and they'd burn it down, and then one guy would say, Take the cannoli, leave the torches. Hey, Dogen, you know what's good for you. Just uh, mind your own P's and Q's, you know? Got a nice monastery there, Dogen. Be a shame if anything happens to it. And I'll donate a little. We'll get you a nice uh, extra little uh, Buddha hall there, okay? You put my name on it. Come on. Let me just say, no offense intended to any Italian-Americans. Yeah. We're not appreciating our accents, but I did grow up in New York City. Hey, that's how we talk. Yeah, it's not Italian. It's just, that's how we talk. In any event, we are no longer in ancient Japan. We are in places like modern Japan and modern New York City, modern Paris, London, right? Now a different question. What does Buddha have to say, and Dogen and the other Zen guys, what do they have to say about today? We still have to guess, of course. Dogen, too, in the 13th century, he wouldn't have a lot to say on many of these questions. But did he? Here's a question. Was the ancient Zen monastery a commune, a kibbutz? What do you think, Kurt? It probably was in the sense that, as you said before, they didn't have their own private property. Maybe they had their own begging bowl, right? That was big in their robes and their sandals. You wouldn't want to wear some other monk's sandals. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yes. And they shared things, and they obviously shared labor because... Sharing labor, but not sandals. Right. This is right. You can't imagine one guy gold-bricking and the others not saying anything, right? So there had to be something going on. And when we read the instructions for the cook, the, the Tenzo Kyokuro... Not Kyokuro. The Kyokun. The Kyokuro. The ky ten Tenzo Kyokun. Tenzo, tenzo Kyokun, or as I like to say, the Tenzo Genzo. Right. Um, when we read that, we see about someone doing a lot of work and talking about the additional kitchen staff and everyone involved and respecting the fact they talk about the rice and they think about the farmer and the rice and everything. So it's all kind of a symbiotic system. And I guess if you just simply think that they didn't have jobs, then it had to be like a commune, right? Well, they had jobs. Their jobs were to be monks, to do their practice, which benefited society. By the way, going back to the Buddha, there's been an Exchange relationship, which some Buddha, uh, Buddhist historians have noted, where the, the monks just don't practice for themselves. They practice for the people who donate, who get the merit, who will get a better reverse re rebirth uh, in the future. There before they donate more. Uh, by the way, there was a little advertising here. The more you donate, the more you get, right? You want to go to the seventh heaven? You donate this month. You want to go to the 27th heaven? Well, that, you know, you got to add a little zero on your donation. There is that kind of symbiotic relationship there. But that's the story they told so they can make people think that these guys just sitting around all day doing nothing served a purpose. Right, like us doing this podcast. By the way, please, folks, donate to us because we're just sitting around like making uh, this podcast for you. And uh, does that serve a purpose? Not at all. But, all right, let's get back to it. If someone donates to us, do they get extra merit? Do they get a better rebirth? Maybe they can be reborn as a caterpillar instead of a slug? You got it. I'll promise anything. Anyway, uh, getting back to the main story, I think the monastery was a commune. And if Dogen and the other Zen folks could have, they would have wished the whole world to be a great monastery. Everyone was to labor. So wait, you're saying they wanted the whole world to be communist? 
Uh, basically, they wouldn't have said communist because uh, it was about uh, 600 years before Marx. Yeah. But yes, there was a lot that resembled a socialist system, no private property, each from his abilities to each his need was there. There was medical. There was medical in these in those days. Now, according medical, literally was a room where they take you, they put you there, give you a couple of herbs and a few chants, and see how things turned out. Because that was all they had, anybody had. All right, so... Did they have dental? I think dental consisted of basically hitting you with a rock and, and seeing what happened, you know. Or a pair of rudimentary pliers. Exactly. So, uh, of course, everybody in the, those days didn't have a lot. But what they had, they supposedly shared. Though I bet you, footnote, Dogen got the best room. I bet you he got the best room. Come on. He got his own bed or his own tatami, where the others were all sleeping in a meditation hall, right? I, I would bet, yeah. This day, what does it have to offer? Let's be kind to each other and share. I think there are lessons from the monastery that apply to all of us. If you want to compare the life back then and the life today, right, we're, we're looking at an economic system and we're saying there's poverty, there's exploitation and all of that. But you look back then, as you say, medical was you put him in a room so he doesn't infect the others and you wait. Life expectancy, I looked it up while you were talking. In 1860, life expectancy was 36.4 in Japan. Now, life it's funny because on Twitter yesterday, I saw someone, X, formerly known as Twitter, posting a graphic showing how life expectancy has dropped in the U.S. and that most people aren't going to live to be an old age. And that's not what life expectancy is. It takes into account death at any age and children dying in childbirth. Children die early, yeah. Which was very high. So Dogen lived to be 52, I think. It wasn't uncommon for people to live to be 60 or 70. But still, health in general is better for the majority of people today than it was back then. So there being a commune meant that maybe all they were eating was rice and that they weren't, you know, eating nutritious food as people are today. There's always trade-offs. No, you can't really compare things. If people get the impression that I'm not pro-capitalist, I am very much pro-capitalist for this reason. With a foot, now I got an asterisk there. We got to get back to it. Why? As we've discussed before on this podcast, I think that generally a large portion of the world is living better with better access to food and health and safety, not to mention conveniences that kings, those Chinese emperors could not even dream of, that we have right here in the rooms where we sit, all due to industrial production and capitalism. I am a believer in capitalism. Ask me what the asterisk is. What's the asterisk? Asterisk. Didn't we talk about that like five episodes? Yeah, asterisk. Ask me the asterisk is... You need to put some limits on it. There are some excess. There's some balance. We talked about the Buddhist capitalism. There are people in this world who are not sharing enough. We're getting there, but we can do better. I think, since they're dead, I can, again, say anything about, I'm sure that Dogen and Buddha would have agreed with me. <laughs> well, if you think about capitalism, and it's easy, the fact that we see so much of the world, we see so many bad things going on, it's easy to think that the world is getting worse, and it's not. Uh, Steven Pinker wrote a book about this, The Better Angels of Our Nature, some years ago, talking about how much better things are in general. There are fewer wars, fewer deaths, etc. Um, China lifted about 800 million people out of poverty over 40 years, from around 1980 to 2020. This was not communist China. This was China that had embraced capitalism. So 
things have been getting better. Things aren't perfect. Things are actually pretty bad in some countries and for some people and for certain classes. But your, your idea for this podcast was, uh, was the Buddha anti-capitalist? That's the email that you sent. And I said to you before we started recording, anti-capitalism is just a bad term. Anti-anything is a bad term. If you're defining your political belief by being against something, that's negative, not positive. I think there's good and bad um, in capitalism. There's capitalism and there's capitalism in air quotes, which is, you know, exploiting people. One of the biggest problems that we see in the United States is people aren't joining unions anymore. So they don't have the power of collective bargaining that they did hey, hey, hey. in the 20th century. Buddha, the monks, the monks tried to unionize. He shut that down. Shut that down. Right? No, you know, no monks union. The, the problem is that people are too individualist and they don't want to group together in movements like that to make things better for themselves. They, there's obviously all sorts of propaganda from the powerful telling people, you know, it doesn't help you, etc. I don't think they said, uh, oh, you can unionize. We're just moving to Mexico with the factory. I think that was more the, the case. It was called globalization. Move your factories to China. Move your factories to Vietnam, to Mexico. That solved the union problem. Well, not exactly. When you consider that a lot of the trades that are unionizing now are people in the retail and hospitality trades, UPS, for instance, delivery drivers, they just had a strike and, and won a whole bunch of concessions. I think Starbucks, Apple store employees are trying to unionize. So, yes, the older unions of the factories, which were no longer, they didn't make sense in the economic situation of the U.S. or certain other countries. But the newer types of jobs also need unions. Anyway, we're, I think we're getting off on a tangent. Well, by the way, I'm not doing another episode unless you pay me more. It's just, I, I just, and I, I need a dental plan. Okay, well, that's the end then. Yes, we'll never make 108. But anyway, <laughs> what would Dogen and Buddha have liked to see a better, fairer world? I know enough about from what is in their writings, by in Dogen's case, or purported to be their writings. They cared about people. They believed in fairness. They would have tried to make the world better if they could have, but they couldn't. So I think Dogen has a couple of beautiful sections of talking about poverty. A poor man comes and he literally rips a piece of the Buddha statue off and gives it to the poor man to sell, to, to feed his family. Yeah. So yes, Dogen had a heart, but there was little you can do. But this day is different. We can make a difference. We can make change. So yes, Buddha was as revolutionary as he could be. So was Dogen. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.